0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 41, our look at how clinical trial designs and strategies are evolving, plus from The Vault, a section of the 2020 episode that asked what we could learn from past drug trial failures and set the stage for researchers to learn the lessons we talk about in this week's episode. I start this conversation by asking Stephen whether non-tertiary care centers, maybe more remote centers with extensive primary care outreach, might not be excellent sites to exercise the new power. Paradigm. He agrees, giving the specific example of Nagachala Sani's work at the University of Indiana. I ask how this approach might fare outside the US, which leads both Eurink Schottenberg and Louise Campbell to state that while it might be a fantastic idea, their medical systems are not set up to operate this way today. This leads to my closing question, which asks each panelist one event over the next six to twelve months that might provide momentum for more robust and rigorous patient recruitment. Listen for our answers, including one that flips the Stephen Harrisonism on its head by talking about juice that definitely is worth the squeeze, but not a attached to a view that might or might not be worth the climb. Stephen Harrison notes in today's episode that we have data from six sets of promising trials reporting over the next six to eight months. If they produce positive outcomes, this will result in part from the quality of medications and in part from the lessons investigators and sponsors have learned about improving trial designs as we discuss here and as compared to the Vault episode we're presenting. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Steve, I have a question for you, and not a question for Louise. Would some of the better tertiary care research universities that have their own primary practices be in a position to do that? I know, for example, a lot of that gets done in oncology. I get all my care in the University of Pennsylvania system. I never got recruited for an oncology trial out of my local primary care office. But you know, back in the days when I was thinking a lot more about oncology, I kept wondering why aren't they recruiting for trials out of here? And then I learned, in fact, that some of the lead PIs were starting to move into, in addition to Center City Philadelphia, one or another of their various satellite offices from where they were recruiting patients. Cancer is an easier target and a lot more people do the research, but is, is that something you could see anyone from a Mayo Clinic the University of Pennsylvania over to a whoever doing?
1: Stephen Harrison. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the example that comes to mind, I recently visited Dr. Naga Chalasani at Indiana University. And if you look at the state of Indiana, the Indiana University has satellite clinics throughout the state. You could envision a situation where you have a protocol at the main campus that could be fed to all these satellite clinics. And patients could learn about trials that way and you could have sub-investigators at these satellite clinics that could theoretically do the screening or they could set up a day and say, look, if you're interested in this trial, we're going to have the main guys come down from from the main university hub in a van and they're going to screen you at this particular location on this particular day if you're interested in the trial. And there's all kinds of perturbations of that that you could think of. But it starts with, with what opportunities exist within that ecosystem of the university, whether it's Pennsylvania, the Mayo Clinic, Indiana, and I suspect Yorn at your place, very similar type situation.
0: So, Stephen, you get my $1 for the guy who asks the next question before I get to ask it, or gal. Yorn, how about your place?
2: Yorn Schottenberg. It's more difficult, I would think, because the universities are not ready to set up hub centers. But I agree with Stephen in that far that this is unclaimed territory. There is clearly a big opportunity here to expend on care. And augment clinical trials and come in and claim this area. So I'm full alignment with that. I think the medical ecosystem in Europe being run a little different, um, the universities are not quite ready to set up these referral centers. And I think this might go more toward uh, private practices. But in general, it holds truth and it will be the same thing. You know, even being uh, living in a smaller country, people have to work. They're not able to go to clinic, spend time there and go back to work and miss time uh, of their busy days, you know, because they're being moms, dads or, or employees. And I think clearly here going to the patients is the way forward. So Louise, take it to you, on.
3: Louise Campbell. I think it's a fantastic initiative, but I agree with Jean. I think it, it, we're not quite set up for it. It takes an awful lot of time to break down traditional barriers. We commented on the podcast the other week that we have a collaboration call out for the Institute of Research um, in the UK for liver units to help go to remote locations. But my general consensus from sitting at one of the meetings was we're still thinking within the liver mental framework of its units working to do it, to collaborate rather than collaborating outside of the traditional. We are moving forward. There are lots of opportunities. We're moving forward in the health service to be carbon neutral. Well, if you go to somebody's local location, you reduce the carbon footprint. So there's lots of ways to do this. But just reflecting on something that Stephen said before about centres being able to recruit. I've recently did a scan catch-up list in five and a half days of 143 patients, 50% of those patients were referred for NAFLD and NASH. But if we look at the figures, the 31% of those patients that we look it, it just in the NAFLD and NASH population required an XL probe. Not every centre has an XL probe, not every place with a fiber, so they're already ruled out. But 8.5 and above, 37% of that NAFLD population made that cutoff. But 17% had full-blown, levels of cirrhosis. Now, this is a center with a fiber scan service that can no longer run it because their team are taking in sick liver patients. So these are, we're not only blocking the funnel, we can't See our own patients, and I am sure that's not every unit in the UK that has a fibre scan. But if you look at the British Liver Trust's docu- details, 74% of the country did not have access to fibre scan and pathways. So, therefore, of the 26% that do have access, some of them are so far backlogged. We, there's a reason we can't get these patients into clinical trial screening, we can't even get them into care. So, we do have to re look at our pathways. And yes, we offer one of the new solutions. But if you don't know about these new solutions, you can't tap into them. Mobile locations aren't a problem for us. Orkneys, Sky, we can get there. We can fiber scan these people. We can get their bloods. We can do all of that with teams. So I think Stephen's absolutely right. We do have to think outside of the boxes that we're currently in. We don't recruit enough low socioeconomic areas. So that's where we see more mortality, more liver disease, more opportunity. But we don't necessarily get to those populations to educate. And they deserve that education. They deserve to be included. We do have to look not only for liver and fatty liver trials, but for any clinical trial. If you get that mobile hub working very well, it has huge potential. And particularly, as Stephen was saying, in the communities that are grossly underserved and underrecognized in targeting these drugs. But the argument would be, whose job is that? Is this pharma? Is this doing education? We know that our biggest populations, are obesity, type 2 diabetes, so we have some really big players in that market who also look at NASH and NAFLD opportunities. So it's a big ask because the fear from healthcare is the more we screen and the more we target even the high populations, the more we will find and the the more expensive that's going to be. So it's multifaceted, but I think we now have to think beyond the traditional because a lot of these patients don't have abnormal liver tests uh, on blood, but they will We'll be having other markers, signs, symptoms, metabolic symptoms. Okay,
0: great. So there's one whole more issue I wanted to get to today that we're not going to get to because we're not only at the bottom of the hour, we slightly past that. So Stephen, you got to come back and join us and talk about rethinking the entire question. How do you design clinical trials and sequences versus parallel and all that? Save that thought for a different day, hopefully soon. Uh, just closing question, we each kind of sit in a different place or we look at the system from a different place. What's the most important thing that's going to happen over the next six months or a year from the place that you sit that will make this problem better? And if the answer is, I can't see anything, then be a pessimist and go say that.
3: I think potentially the UK may take a massive step forward. I think at the end of September, NICE are going to finally decide, having had a provisional turning down, they're rethinking, they may well approve scan for primary care. And if they do that, that could unblock the blockages currently going through for people even being screened to get to their secondary care providers and specialists. And I think we can then locate patients. So I would hope that's going to happen because there are patients sitting who are not going to get any care without that.
0: That would be huge. Joran, go ahead.
2: Yeah, from my perspective, I think there is still a lot of work to be done in terms of education. We're slowly making progress in terms of educating other physicians that are seeing these patients and sending them. But the big step is going to be forward if there are partners moving into this field. And I think I'd like to re-emphasize that I do see big opportunity here to offer healthcare services through referral systems and building this up. And I think if you have partners, this is going to really benefit drug development. You know, as Stephen said, even outside of the liver disease arena, I think this is something that would make a big difference.
1: Six months, we'll know a lot about drug development. Six months, we'll know if Acaro's drug worked, Epoxel's drug worked. If Altimmune's drug is working in fatty liver, we'll know Madrigal's phase three trial results, and we'll know Icasabutate's trial results. So you're talking six, huge sets of data that should be out in the next six months. So, And they all don't have to be positive. There is one that does need to be positive. If we want to take the next big step for mankind in the field of fatty liver, we need a drug approved. I think if we can get good news, it's very likely that there will be a drug approval, then I think the speed of momentum picks up in disease awareness, in patients' interest, in funding to do additional non-invasive testing, to continue to refine our algorithms. It, it kind of all starts with, I think, that hope of a drug approval. It doesn't have to be approved yet. But I think if we get to the point where we all feel confident that the therapy therapeutic index is such that the drug is likely to be approved, then I think a lot of balls begin to move and are put in motion. And they all have, they all have, I think, an effect on how we are going to move forward in this field from, from a disease awareness perspective, from an NIT perspective, from an endpoint perspective. I think I think all of that revs up its pace a bit.
0: So, Stephen, I'm going to use a Stephen that you haven't used today, which is what I used to say to clients at moments like this is, if you want to change your rules, find more juice. And uh, the question then becomes is the juice worth the squeeze? The two specific forms the juice is going to take here are cash and optimism. Optimism is because it's going to motivate people to step out of the boundaries they know and cash because it's going to give them the tools to do that. And what will make the juice worth to squeeze is one particular uh, drug succeeding and then seeing that it's not the only thing that's ever going to succeed so i i'm dead on with your answer and i'm happy that i got to use your juice squeeze analogy in support of your answer i feel good about right. that We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be off next week, but Louise Campbell will lead Jorn Schottenberg and a panel of health professionals and patient advocates discussing the nurse's role in clinical care pathways. I can't wait to listen, and you shouldn't either. I'll be back the week after that for episode 43, which will look at the evolution of combination therapies and their place in our future. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.